0: Good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Bruce Garner. If we haven't met, I met quite a few people for the first time in the second service, the one that uh, was just before this one. Welcome to the third service of the day. And let me just tell you, I am delighted to be home. I understand that while I was away, depending on the service you attended, you were told that I uh, either got a mohawk haircut or received a tattoo or got a piercing. Um <laughs> The mohawk is, part is obviously not true, I can assure you without evidence that the other parts are also false. I have no piercings, I have no tattoos, although where we were, I did see a place that proudly advertised on the wall outside of a pretty rundown building, home of the $35 tattoo. And I don't know anything about tattoos, but $35 seems very, very inexpensive for just about anything these days, and certainly for a tattoo, so I passed, not knowing what was being said about me uh, this time ago, last week. Uh, which version did you get here in the third service? Mohawk. Mohawk, this was the Mohawk service, okay? Uh, somebody actually went to work on Photoshop and gave me a Mohawk, and I received that, I received that picture while I was still in Springfield, Missouri, and you know, you go away one weekend and everything just cuts loose. The reason we were in Springfield and the reason I'm so grateful uh, to have the freedom from the congregation to travel with other pastors and church leaders, Pastor Rob Lyons and three young leaders from our church uh, were in Springfield, Missouri at a Young Adults Conference, and this generation receives too much criticism. That's true of every new generation. That's That's been going on forever. Just so you know, the greatest generation was called the lost generation by their parents. Keep that in mind when you uh, think about the kids. Uh, It has always been the nature of parents and grandparents to criticize their youngers. But we were in Springfield, Missouri and got to be witness, and Pastor Rob got to be a speaker at a young adults conference with 700 kids, 700, I shouldn't call them kids, young adults uh, from all over the region gathered to worship Jesus and learn from Him Serve him better. God is doing great things in every generation. Don't let the naysayers and the critics get you down. That's why I was away, but I'm delighted to be back. Do you have your Bibles? If you don't have your Bibles, would you find one near you? Or would you turn your Bible on? Because that's the way that works in the 21st century. And open it, please, to Matthew 16. Here's where we're headed. Warning on the front side, and I'm going to ask for your very best attention because as a preacher and a Bible teacher, I really have my work cut out for me in this passage. Anytime you open the Bible, it's a challenge because you're stepping back in history. We're moving back some 2,000 years into a culture and a language not our own. There are word pictures and symbols here, some of which have carried over, but others that are going to be unfamiliar. So it will take me a little longer than I would actually like to explain everything that's going on in this conversation with Jesus. That's been, for the last three weeks, counting this one, that's been our series. I've just been highlighting some conversations that Jesus had with people. One of the most interesting things about Jesus is that He draws people out with questions. Though as the Son of God, He can't actually learn from people because He already knows everything, including according to the Gospel of John in the second chapter, Jesus knows what's in our heart, He still asks them questions. And sometimes through answering His questions, they discover things about themselves, they wrestle with things about Him. That's what's happening here. Next week, we're going to start a three-week series on prophecy. Because though the Bible in its majority is prophetic, most Christians don't know how to read prophecy, don't really know what to do besides pick a verse here and there for comfort and encouragement, and that's perfectly legitimate. But once you understand who the prophets were, what they intended, and how to read them, your whole Bible is going to open up to you. That starts next week. Right now, we're listening to Jesus in a region that Matthew goes out of his way to explain to us is in the district in Israel of Caesarea Philippi. Here, he's going to draw them out with the question about a controversy that was raging in his time that is still raging in ours. Jesus is going to ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that question is still being asked and answered in every possible way 2,000 years later, especially at Christmas and at Easter time. You can see it in as mundane a place as the grocery store. The end cap magazines at the checkout will always have a National Geographic. Sometimes the tabloids jump in as well. Everybody at Easter and Christmas is weighing in with stories that they run every year Usually they'll find some medieval art and Jesus is looking at us from the glow of a halo and the magazine cover will say, who is Jesus? And inside you'll find every possible theory from an alien to a really smart teacher, to a smart aleck who went too far against the Roman Empire and got himself killed, to the very Son of God. All options are discussed. That started when Jesus was still on earth, Matthew 16 Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And already we've stepped back with some time and some distance. Because Jesus is speaking of Himself in the third person. He's calling Himself the Son of Man. And already you need to learn something about Jesus' time and Jesus' Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Generally speaking, I don't care for guys who speak of themselves in the third person. Do you have a friend like this? I have a guy, we'll, I have a friend, we'll call him Bill, I don't, that's not his name, but I never know if he might tune in and find out that I'm criticizing him in front of a bunch of people. You go, well, you know, Bill, and I go, who's Bill? He goes, well, me. Why don't you say I? I'm sitting right here. We've met. Why don't you refer to yourself as a normal person, mate, and talk in the first person? (laughs) Jesus is doing it, but He's doing it for a very specific reason. If you have a study Bible, you can even find references probably back to the source material. When Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man, He's holding hands with a prophecy all the way back in your Old Testament in the book of Daniel. In it, Daniel had a vision of someone who is clearly divine, clearly God, who is referred to as the Son of Man. As Jesus is so often doing, he's saying just a few words and his few short words have layers of meaning. Jesus is identifying himself with that exalted messianic Son of God prophecy all the way back in the book of Daniel with this mysterious, powerful figure of God Himself called the Son of Man, but He's also identifying what is much more obvious to them, that He's a human being, that the Jesus standing right in front of them is a man, a man so very human, so actually 100% human, that soon enough they're going to see Him arrested, and beaten, and spit upon, and tortured, and killed. And these same disciples, those who don't run away, are going to watch him bleed and they're going to watch him die. So with just one question, in just a simple title, Jesus is reminding them who he is even as he asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And if you know your Bible, you don't have to. But if you know your Bible, that's a little small cross-section of the Hall of Fame of the prophets. John the Baptist was kin to Jesus, probably his cousin, who went ahead of him preaching in, before Jesus arrived. John the Baptist is the one, one day is going to stop preaching and say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, these other prophets that are mentioned, Elijah did not write anything, but boy did Elijah do things. He was a powerful miracle worker. Jeremiah is one of the greatest writing prophets. If you turn left in your Bible, 100 or 200 pages, you'll find the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. So the answer is, Jesus, people are all over the place, but they're agreed. You are some kind of prophet or some kind of preacher sent on behalf of God. In John chapter 3, you can read of a religious teacher named Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night and said, Teacher, we know that you come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. There's no denying just by the ordinary man in the back of the crowd who can hear Jesus, much less see what Jesus can do. This is someone different. He's in another category. He is at least someone sent from God to speak for him. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus can be uncomfortable. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And if it's your first time in church or your first time in church in a long time, you should know Jesus is still asking. He's very much alive. And He's always asking people. He's always pressing them for a decision. He's patient and loving and kind He'll show you all the evidence you need. But he's always asking. He's not a concept. He's a person. He's the most extraordinary person that's ever lived. He is the very Son of God. He is the only sinless man that's ever walked this earth. And he knows that. So he's always going to be asking people, then and now, who do you say that I am? And one of his disciples spoke up. If you've read ahead or you know the story, who might you guess speaks up? Peter, always Peter. Peter, always first. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong. As I say about myself, sometimes often mistaken, but never in doubt. (laughs) Peter answers. He answers for the group. This time he's right on the money. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And there's a lot there. Christ is a Greek word. In Hebrew, it's written Messiah. It means the anointed one. It's a big, big symbol that God has set someone aside, anointed Him as His messenger. In Jesus' case, as a prophet and a priest. Jesus is also anointed as the King who comes from the Father, He's all of those things wrapped into one. He's every great man and every great figure they've ever had, plus the very Son of God standing right in front of them. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, in His own language, using the language of the Bible says, Peter says to Jesus, I heard the way you asked the question and I agree. You are not only the son of a man, you are the son of man. God is your father. You are most definitely a human being, but you are also God. You are the very son of God. And Jesus answered him. And try to imagine yourself in this scenario. See if you can stand where Peter does and imagine that this is said to you. Blessed are you. And he calls him by his name, Simon Bar-Jonah. In other words, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Wow. If you had been asked the question and dared to give Peter's answer and Jesus looked at you and said, blessed are you, you're exactly right. And you didn't figure that out. And no ordinary human explained that to you and persuaded you of what you just said. You know that because my Father who is in heaven showed you what you just said. How might you feel? Is that a good day or a bad day? You're having a very, very good day. And as I'm going to show you before we're done, I think it went a little bit to Peter's head Peter said something extraordinary. He said something true, which gives me the first of three big truths in this conversation. Number one, to know that Jesus is the promised Savior and the Son of God is a revelation from your Father in heaven. If you're sitting in church persuaded that Jesus is the Son of God who was sent by God to cover your sins, to give you eternal life, If you can pray to Jesus and He's more than a name to you, He's actually your Savior, He's your boss, you've put Him in charge, you've turned away from your sins and put Him in charge of guiding your life and someday in heaven saving your life, if that's true of you, the only reason for that is because God loves you and God showed that to you. It's not a fact of you were raised a certain way in a certain part of the world, or you're smarter than anybody else. No, that is always, to understand who Jesus is, is always a gift of the revelation, of the blessing of God opening up your heart and mind to see who His Son is. That's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus does. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, this is just a little side trail, but indulge me. In Matthew chapter 11, it's written there on your outline, Jesus is talking about salvation and judgment. And He breaks into prayer. One of those interesting times that Jesus just breaks into extemporaneous prayer and starts thanking His Father for something. I want to show you how blessed you are and what it takes to be in God's family. Matthew 11:25. 25. This is earlier. But the ideas are very, very much connected. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Watch this. And no one knows the Son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him now jesus here is speaking about his father and he's speaking about himself showing people the father it's the mirror image it's the other side of the coin of what he said in matthew 16 which we're studying this morning this takes you into the depths of the beautiful biblical teaching We have called the Trinity, that God exists eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you know Jesus, Jesus has revealed the Father to you. And the reason you know Jesus is because the Father pointed to Jesus and said, This is my Son. Listen to Him. You can trust Him. He's real. He can do what He promises. I sent Him. In other words, you're more loved than you can imagine. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one eternal God somehow existing eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in unity but existing in three persons. All of God loves you. And the Father sent the Son for you and the Son showed the Father to you and the Father proved to you who His Son is and then the Holy Spirit came in and showed you your need, and showed you your guilt and your shame, showed you that you couldn't possibly save yourself, you may have experienced that as guilt or embarrassment or regret. If God was at work, what was actually happening was conviction from the Holy Spirit. God, through the Holy Spirit, was showing you spiritual reality that you needed to give up on saving yourself and start trusting Jesus to do it. All of that, Jesus says, is not the domain of the wise and the learned and the powerful. It's for little children. And then he says in verse 28, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a lot of Jewish language there. Here's at the heart what it means. Jesus insists on being in charge. You can't welcome Jesus as a wingman. He refuses to be a co-pilot. He is the Son of God and the prophet and the priest and the king that God is. He can't take second place. He can't rule beside you. He has to be in charge. And the people who take him up on this are people of a simple childlike faith who renounce their own self-wisdom, who renounce their own self-importance, and with the simple trust of a child who believes that dad will do what he said, take him at his word and take his teaching upon them and discover that he's not burdensome and that he's not harsh, and that He's actually, as He says here, He's gentle and lowly in heart, and that He gives rest for your soul even though He remains in charge and He gives you rest because He's in charge. All of those things are gifts from God to you if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a Christian, that's how you're loved. That's the first thing Peter shows me in this conversation. Then it gets a little deeper. Look with me, please, in verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Now, if you're looking very closely at your Bible, and I hope you always do, in the first verse I read to you, in verse 16, he calls him by his name. And there's a little Hebrew there. Blessed are you, Simon, the son of Jonah. There are cultures on that side of of the world that to this day, their naming custom is to name children after their father and their grandfather and the grandfather before him and back for generations. The names are sometimes accumulated. Jesus shows just a little hint of that saying, Simon, son of Jonah, you're a blessed man. You didn't figure that out. My heavenly Father showed that to you. But then in verse 17, he calls him by his name, but in verse 18, he does something a little different. I tell you, you are Peter. And if you know your Bible, and some of you some of you will know the answer to that, is Peter a name? It is for us. What was it for Peter? A nickname. You know what it was? pretty cool nickname. It wasn't something that Peter ascribed to himself. Be careful of that. Never give yourself a nickname. That's corny. <laughs> it's corny to nickname yourself. It's far better if your friends, if your brothers in arms call you something, and hopefully it's not mean. Hopefully it's not something that haunts you. Jesus got a nickname Peter rather got a nickname from Jesus himself from the beginning, from the early days of their friendship. Jesus called Peter Rock. That's pretty cool. One of the most well-known American celebrities calls himself The Rock. And if your name was Dwayne Johnson, you might prefer for people to call you The Rock as well. And if you look like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock does, then you can totally pull that off, and people got to respect that because he has arms like legs and legs like people, if you've seen pictures of him lately. (laughs) He's found the weight room and a chemist along the way, I'm pretty sure, but it's not my business. He's a wrestler and an athlete and an entrepreneur, and he recently said he wouldn't run for president, which, wow, okay, thank you. Um... (laughs) i think who knows i don't know we're far afield here jesus called peter the rock and now he's going to play with that nickname i tell you you are rock you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it i will give you still talking to peter I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wow. What does this mean? What's this about? Then, a final strange, surprising fact reported by Matthew, who must have been present. Verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, I didn't see that coming. Jesus is pressing for an answer. He gets the right one. You are the Christ. You're the one God promised us and you are God Himself. You are the very Son of God. Peter, you're blessed. I've called you a rock and on this rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't be able to stand up against it. And you're going to have some keys and whatever that means. You're going to be Tying things up, and you're going to be locking and unlocking things on earth, and that same thing is going to happen in heaven. But don't tell anyone. Not yet. What in the world does all of this mean? I'm going to walk you through it, and I'm going to point out to you a common mistake I think the churches make in dealing with the passage where Peter is told, You're a rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. To make it very simple, here's the second big truth from this conversation. Jesus is telling us that beginning with Peter and his fellow apostles and continuing to this day, to this moment, right now, that we're having in church, Jesus builds his, peop- his church through ordinary people. Peter was a commercial fisherman. In terms of rabbinical training, Peter either washed out or never tried. The greatest hope and aspiration a Jewish family could have is that one of their sons could learn the Scriptures so well that he could teach them to others. Then, in using Jewish understanding, they would be given the keys. And they would have authority to open up the Word of God and let God's people who had received God's words in the Hebrew Scriptures understand who God was and what He wanted. Nothing more important than that. Then and now, if there really is a God, the real question is, who is He and what am I supposed to do about it? Is He far away and uninvolved or is He as close as my blood is to my veins? The question matters. And if He really is close and personal and if He is a holy, loving, but merciful judge, I better deal with Him as He actually is and not as I pretend Him to be or imagine Him to be. Peter here has said the right thing and then Peter receives this astonishing affirmation that Peter is a rock of some kind and Jesus is going to build his church on the rock and it's going to be built so well and stand so strong that the gates of hell will not prevail against it and Peter is going to have some kind of authority to open things up for people and also to lock them down. What's going on here? Peter is an ordinary person, a rabbinical school wash out or drop out or never was, but he is being told that he and ordinary man, probably the oldest of the apostles, is going to have a foundational role in the church of Jesus Christ. Two things are true at once. Here's the first. Jesus is the foundation of his own church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11 says this. Will you read this with me, please? It says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of the local church is Jesus. It can't be torn out. It can't be replaced. There is not another. The foundation is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus says that he is going to build his church, please understand this. He's only and always talking about ordinary groups of people, like his apostles, And as different as we are from them 2,000 years later, he's talking about ordinary people like us. The word church means congregation. It means assembly. That word has been used in so many different ways that people can sometimes not lose sight of what a church actually is. This right here, what we're doing in this service, we are an assembly. We were brought together. We're paying attention to Jesus together. I'm just one of you. I'm not the head of the church. Jesus is. I'm just an appointed and trusted, and I thank you for that, leader within the church. But what we are is a gathering of people who have come together to hear from Jesus and do what he says. And when Jesus is saying that he's going to build his church, don't think that that's in this institutional, abstract, nobody nobody knows what that means kind of way. Let me give an example. If I here told you that we here at Crosspoint love the family and want to bless the family and encourage the family and teach the family and defend the family and encourage the family, if you heard me say all that, would you ask me which one? Probably not, right? The family is an institution. But blessing a family, encouraging a family, starting a family... That always happens with ordinary people sitting right in front of you. We do love the family. We do bless the family. We do encourage the family. But we can only do that one actual, personal, practical, sitting right in front of me family at a time. Please, and COVID really pushed a lot of churches in this direction, please never call yourself a member of the universal church if you're not sitting with actual people. If you don't actually have friends and relationships, because this concept, this institution of the church, which Jesus promised to give himself for, that Jesus nourishes himself for, that Jesus sacrificed himself according to Ephesians chapter 5, that institution, Jesus says, is going to prevail. It will overcome in the end, though individual congregations may falter and fail and disappear and be persecuted out of existence because Jesus loves his church. He's going to build it one actual real congregation at a time, and in the end it will not be defeated. And when Jesus founded his church, he made himself... The preeminent rock, the cornerstone, the foundation of his church, which no one else can replace, but at the same time, the apostles were foundational. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Notice this is the same apostle Paul, the same man that told the Corinthians, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ also said this. Read Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 with me, please. It says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is a very important piece of the New Testament. Let me explain it to you. We read that out of a book called Ephesians because that letter was first received by the church at Ephesus. You can visit ancient Ephesus. It's ruins now. But you can visit Ephesus and you can learn by your visit there and by reading history and inscriptions at the site and in university libraries worldwide that Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey, in its time when Paul was preaching there, when Paul wrote this letter to them, was one of the centers of world idolatry. It was a wicked place known all across the ancient world for a very famous temple erected to a Greco-Roman goddess. People traveled from all over the world to worship at the temple in Ephesus. What sorts of things went on there? Well, in Ephesus, things like drunkenness were considered a religious experience. Things like ritual sexuality and ritual prostitution could be part of the pagan rituals. In other words, you could pay a stranger for sex and get drunk while you're having that sexual relationship and in all of that, commune with the gods. That was Ephesus. That's why it's so significant that Paul says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and you are now members of the household of God. Same as anyone ever was who walked with God, you're now built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Make no mistake, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone, but with the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and with Christ as the cornerstone, the foundation of the foundation... The whole structure being joined together grows into a temple, in a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Why am I reading you all that deep as it is? Because that's what's happening now. That's what Jesus wants to do here. Jesus does not want this to be a TED Talk with the Bible. That's offensive to His plan. Jesus is very much alive. The congregation that is truly His, that is built on His Word, that honors His name, belongs to Him. He's alive and He's promising to bless it. And that means that though the apostles were foundational, every Christian, including you, is essential. Every part of that household that God is building matters if we collectively are being built spiritually into a house for God, that means that you, you who just got here, if you become part of this congregation, if this becomes your assembly where you gather with God's people to worship God's Son, you matter very much. He has a plan for you in His work of building up His church. This weekend, I went through a rite of passage in Southern California that I hope to never endure. Our house was tinted for termites. Anybody ever had the joy of that? It's terrible. I've never spent so much money where nobody can tell that anything was done. (laughs) The house looks exactly the way it did before that big circus tent went up. I have to look very carefully at where I first noticed the termite damage. That's what caught my eye. One corner of the house, the fascia, they call it, started to crumble. And I thought, that looks like it's going to be expensive. So I called a guy, and the guy came out from the termite company, and the guy had a clipboard, and he walked the house, and every five or ten feet he'd stop and go, "Hmm." And he'd write on the clipboard. And I thought, every pause and every grunt is costing me money. I bet that, "Mm," and those arched eyebrows, I bet that's about 500 bucks right there. Oh no, he stopped and he's writing again. (laughs) And the tenting wasn't actually that expensive. The repairs were the worst part of it. And why did I do that? Because I'd like to give the house to my kids someday. Because I'd like to make sure that Evan doesn't fall through the, through the deck on the second floor. I'd like our whole family to be able to walk out on the deck and not break our backs by falling on the concrete below. What was the evidence? Just about five little places on that house showed that they were being eaten by termites and dry rot had set in. Now I had a choice. I could ignore it. And someone on my block did that for years. And the house has now been gutted because little damage to little pieces was ignored for decades. For over 50 years, no one paid attention to little parts of the house suffering. That's the way it is with the household of God. That's why the Bible says elsewhere that when someone rejoices, we rejoice with them, and when someone weeps, we weep with them, because every Christian is essential. You're part of what Jesus is doing. You're part of what Jesus is building. You have been lovingly shown by the Father who the Son is, and now you're part of this extraordinary truth that Jesus builds His church through ordinary people. Peter has, as simple and mundane as he is, Peter has a role in it. Peter is going to start preaching in the book of Acts, and he's going to use those keys, and he's going to open up the kingdom. Not because he has authority to bring people in, but because he has not only the authority, but the power to explain to people who Jesus is. You see, in the parlance of the New Testament in Jesus' day, keys represented authority, and they still do. If you've got keys to a place, that means that you have a certain level of trust and authority in that place. If you don't have keys to a place, it means, sorry, they don't trust you enough to give you the keys, at least not yet. That's why you have keys to your house, but not to the police department, unless you're a police officer. That's why most of the world is closed to you. You only have keys to the places that belong to you, where you've been invited in, where you live and where you work. Peter and uh, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke rebuked the religious teachers of his day. He said, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You haven't entered the kingdom and you've stopped the people who wanted to come in from coming in themselves. That's what it means that Peter has the keys. He's going to dictate the terms. He's going to explain how people can be accepted into the kingdom of God. And the reason I believe Jesus said in verse 20, don't tell anybody yet. That's really interesting. And there's several theories of what might be happening here. Here's my favorite. I don't think the apostles are ready. I believe that because of the next story. Look with me, please. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to, what's it say there? Rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from You, Lord, this shall never happen to You. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me. What do you call him? What a switch. From blessed are you, Simon Barjona, to get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter and the rest of the apostles will wait as Jesus told them to do for the arrival of the Holy Spirit and then they will receive power and be his witnesses everywhere. Right now I think he told them though you're right. Peter you nailed it and someday you're going to open up the kingdom to people by telling people what you just said about me not yet. So Peter's an ordinary person foundational to the church foundational through his writings because Peter gave you two books in the New Testament that bear his name first and second Peter Peter is almost certainly the source material for Mark's gospel Mark wrote it but it's almost a certain fact that he was so close to Peter that Peter told him the stories that Mark wrote down Peter is foundational Jesus is the cornerstone but Peter and the rest of the apostles are foundational to the church of Jesus so don't discard the apostles And don't put anyone in Jesus' place. There's a ditch on either side of the road. And because of the influence and the power of Jesus, I can tell you one thing for sure. Number three, and the best and most important truth in this story, what Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church is absolutely true, and the church of Jesus will overcome in the end. Individual congregations may be closed because of failure. Corrupt leadership. Disinterested people. Ungodliness that corrupts a church and slowly removes its influence until Jesus Himself, as He said He would in the book of Revelation, comes and removes that church. Any individual church is always at risk of getting away from Jesus and closing or failing in its mission, but Jesus who builds His church cannot and will not be defeated he will keep opening churches he will keep opening up the gospel he will keep using ordinary people to tell people the truth and the very gates of hell will not be able to withstand him and i want to give you before i show you something and we're done i want to ask you an important question because this phrase of jesus the gates of hell will not prevail against it is often misunderstood especially now as Christians begin to complain about being persecuted. And let me tell you, here in the United States, we're not. Not yet. Not the way Christians always have been. Not the way your brothers across Asia and in northern Africa and the Middle East are this morning. We may be mistreated. We may suffer injustice. We may put up with rudeness. But we are not yet persecuted the way the historic churches of Jesus always have been. But Jesus said something surprising. He said, The gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does that mean? People have usually pictured the Christian church in times of trouble as a church hunkered down and putting up with it. Like a boxer on the rope, covering his face, covering the interior of his body where his most sensitive organs are, and just weathering the storm. It's not what Jesus said. Gates are not weapons. Gates are defenses. If you have a gate in front of your house, it's to keep people out. You don't uproot gates and run down the street to attack your enemies with the gate. Gates are not weapons. What Jesus is saying here is not that my church will weather a storm and be found standing. That's also true. He's actually saying something much more powerful and much better. He says that his church will not only storm the gates of hell, it will defeat them and that Satan will not have the final word, and that people who ignore Jesus and defy Him and deny Him and lie against Him, as the Apostle Paul himself once did, will be snatched back out of hell and will be turned not into enemies of God, which they once were, they'll be turned into the children of God and His very own servants. And the reason Jesus told this story where He did is vitally important. You'll notice way up in verse 13, Matthew says that when Jesus started this conversation was he, when he was in a place called Caesarea Philippi. I'd like to show you the most interesting part in the district that used to be called Caesarea Philippi. This is in modern day Israel. This is not an artist rendering, this is a contemporary picture. This is in the district that used to be called Caesarea Philippi. They are no longer there, but you can see some of their remains. There used to be three temples in front of this cave. One of them was built shortly before Jesus was born. I've been there a couple times myself. It's much more striking in person than any picture can do it justice. It's a lot more ominous than it looks. The rocks are a lot brighter red. I was reminded of the red rocks of Utah. You'll notice a very dark cave to the left. You'll also notice some Greco-Roman statuary. And if you look carefully between the cave and between this column, you'll see a little arch carved into the place. The reason for that is this was a smorgasbord of the gods. You can walk this place with dozens of tourists anytime you like in Israel and find Greek inscriptions that you can still read carved into the stones. You can find these little niches all over this place. And every niche represented a place for an idol. A place for a false god to be named and worshipped and honored in this place. This was a place of wild sexual immorality. And though according to history an earthquake changed it quite a bit, there used to be a great deal of water flowing out of that cave. A small stream still does. And this was a place for wild Sexuality, for orgies and every kind of sexual indulgence, for the worship of the idol or the god of your choice, uh, animal sacrifices were thrown into that cave. If the sacrifice disappeared, it was thought that the gods accepted the the sacrifice. If blood showed up or the body re-emerged downstream, it was thought that the gods were angry and had rejected the sacrifice. And listen, this place had a name. This was known as Pan's Cave. In present day Israel it's called Banyas because in Arabic there is no letter or no sound P. It's called Pan's Cave for a good reason. The Greek god Pan who you may remember if you paid attention in mythology was a god made half man and half goat. The God of wild things, the God of the outdoors and wildlife, a very sexual, promiscuous God. A God who was wild and wicked and chaotic. It's not coincidental that Disney named one of its most famous characters, can you guess? Peter Pan. Always chaotic, always unpredictable, never serious, always playful. That's Pan, the God that guarded this cave. This river was thought to flow down into the depths of the underworld. A contemporary around the time of Jesus said that they tried to measure the depths of the water and they failed because this was thought in Greco-Roman religion to be the thought, to be the place where hell began. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you, this place had a nickname. Can you guess what they called it? The gates of hell. That's why Jesus waited until he was in Caesarea Philippi when these good, observant Jewish boys' skin was crawling because they were close to the place of all this wickedness where so many animals had slaughtered, where so many women had been abused, where so much immorality had taken place. It was there that Jesus said, hey, who do people say that I am? A lot of theories. Who do you say that I am? Well, you're the one God promised. You're the very Son of God. You're right. And on that truth, using people like you, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to stand against what I'm building. That's why I would tell you, church, the church of Jesus will overcome in the end. And here's why that matters. Let me tell you so what. Number one, we should never get used to the idea of knowing Jesus. If you know Jesus, go home happy and go home amazed that the Son of God revealed Himself to you, that the Father sent His Son for you. Number two, the very best thing we can do is invest in what Jesus is building. The only thing in Scripture that I find that Jesus Himself promised personally to build is His church. Of course He did we're his body, we're his household, we're his assembly, we're his congregation. Of course he's going to build his church. If church has become a periphery item to you, if it's out on the edges, please take Jesus seriously at his word and invest your life, your talent, your sacrificing, your giving, your loving, your serving. Give it to the one thing on earth that Jesus himself is building And while you walk along with Jesus, thirdly, we should live with the confidence that we are walking towards certain victory. Jesus said that Peter was blessed because of what Peter knew about Jesus. This conversation teaches me that the blessed life rests on who Jesus is. And the blessed life is a life that invests into what Jesus is building. Let's pray together. it may be surprising for you to be in church especially at an 11 a.m. service on a holiday weekend if you don't already know Jesus but do you? are you sure? do you have the absolute certain confidence that Jesus has given you eternal life? Jesus said take my yoke upon you have you? have you put him in charge or are you not sure? If you're not sure, I'm inviting you right now in his name to turn to him and with very simple trust tell him that you want him to be your savior, your boss. You're dethroning yourself and enthroning him. You're putting him in charge. And Christian, if the assembly, if the household of God where God lives, what Jesus builds. If that's somewhere on the list, but not at the top, let Jesus reorient your thinking. Invest in what he's promised to build. Be part of that work. Use the keys yourself and tell people how he can bring them into the kingdom. You're not an apostle, you're not part of the foundation, but you're part of the house. Be a solid part in it. Hold other people up. Be one of those welcoming elements that will bring people in from outside. Show them the warmth, the love, the hospitality of God Himself.